Chapter Four Continued of the Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte M. Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four Continued. As soon as Mr. Edmonston had recollected himself and pronounced it to be exceedingly proper, etc., they entered into a discussion on the neighboring curates and came at last to a resolution that Philip should see whether Mr. Lascelles a curate of Broadstone, and an old schoolfellow of his own, would read with Guy a few hours in every week. After this was settled, Guy looked relieved, though he was not himself all the evening, and sat in his old corner between the plants and the window, where he read a grave book, instead of talking, singing, or finishing his volume of ten thousand a year. Charlotte was all this time ill at ease, she looked from Guy to Philip, from Philip to Guy. She shut her mouth as if she was forming some great resolve, then colored, and looked confused, rushing into the conversation with something more mal a propos than usual, as if on purpose to appear at her ease. At last, just before her bedtime, when the tea was coming in, Mrs. Edmonston engaged with that, Laura reading, Amy clearing Charles's little table, and Philip helping Mr. Edmonston to unravel the confused accounts of the late cheating bailiff, Guy suddenly found her standing by him, perusing his face with all the power of her great blue eyes. She started as he looked up, and put her face into Amabel's great myrtle, as if she would make it appear that she was smelling to it. "'Well, Charlotte,' said he, and the sound of his voice made her speak, but in a frightened, embarrassed whisper, "'Guy, Guy, oh, I beg your pardon, but I wanted to—' "'Well, what?' said he kindly. "'I wanted to make sure that you were not angry with Philip. You don't mean to keep up the feud, do you?' "'Feud? I hope not,' said Guy, too much in earnest to be diverted with her lecture." I am very much obliged to him. Are you really? said Charlotte, her head a little on one side. I thought he had been scolding you. Scolding was so very inappropriate to Philip's calm, argumentative way of advising that it became impossible not to laugh. Not scolding, then, said Charlotte. You are too nearly grown up for that, but telling you to learn and being tiresome. I was so foolish as to be provoked at first, answered Guy, but I hope I have thought better of it, and am going to act upon it. Charlotte opened her eyes wider than ever, but in the midst of her amazement, Mrs. Edmonston called to Guy to quit his leafy screen and come to tea. Philip was to return to Broadstone the next day, and as Mrs. Edmonston had some errands there, that would occupy her longer than Charles liked to wait in the carriage. It was settled that Philip should drive her there in the pony phaeton, and Guy accompany them and drive back, thus having an opportunity of seeing Philip's print of the Madonna di San Sisto. Returning some calls and being introduced to Mr. Lascelles, while she was shopping, they appointed an hour in place of meeting and kept to it, after which Mrs. Edmonston 
took Guy with her to call on Mrs. Dean, the wife of the colonel. It was currently believed among the young Edmonstons that Mama and Mrs. Dean never met without talking over Mr. Morville's good qualities, and the present visit proved no exception. Mrs. Dean, a kind, open-hearted, elderly lady, was very fond of Mr. Morville, and proud of him as a credit to the regiment, and she told several traits of his excellent judgment, kindness of heart and power of leading to the right course. Mrs. Edmonston listened, and replied with delight, and no less pleasure and admiration were seen reflected in her young friend's radiant face. Mrs. Edmonston's first question, as they set out on their homeward drive, was whether they had seen Mr. LaSalle. Yes, said Guy, I am to begin tomorrow, and go to him every Monday and Thursday. That is prompt. Ah, I have no time to lose. Besides, I have been leading too smooth a life with you. I want something unpleasant to keep me in order. Something famously horrid, repeated he, smacking the whip with a relish, as if he would have applied that if he could have found nothing else. "'You think you live too smoothly at Hollywell,' said Mrs. Edmonston, hardly able, with all her respect for his good impulses, to help laughing at this strange boy. "'Yes, happy, thoughtless, vehement. That is what your kindness makes me. Was it not a proof that I must needs fly out at such a petty provocation?' I should not have thought it such a very exciting life, certainly not such as is usually said to lead to thoughtlessness, and we have been even quieter than usual since you came. Ah, you don't know what stuff I am made of, said Guy, gravely, though smiling. Your own home party is enough to do me harm. It is so exceedingly pleasant. Pleasant things do not necessarily do harm. Not to you, not to people who are not easily unsettled. But when I go upstairs after a talking, merry evening, such as the night before last, I find that I have enjoyed it too much. I am all abroad. I can hardly fix my thoughts, and I don't know what to do, since here I must be, and I can't either be silent or sit up in my own room. Certainly not, said she, smiling. There are duties of society which you owe even to us dangerous people. No, no, don't misunderstand me. The fault is in myself. If it was not for that, I could learn nothing but good, said Guy, speaking very eagerly, distressed at her answer. I believe I understand you, said she, marveling at the serious, ascetic temper coupled with the very high animal spirits. For your comfort, I believe the unsettled feeling you complain of is chiefly the effect of novelty. You've led so very retired a life that a lively family party is to you what dissipation would be to other people, and, as you must meet with the world some time or other, it is better the first encounter with it should be in this comparatively innocent form. Go on watching yourself, and it will do you no harm. Yes, but if I find it does me harm, it would be cowardly to run away, 
and resistance should be from within. Yet, on the other hand, there is the duty of giving up, wrenching oneself from all that has temptation in it. There is nothing, said Mrs. Edmonston, that has no temptation in it, but I should think the rule was plain. If a duty such as that of living among us for the present, and making yourself moderately agreeable, involves temptations, they must be met and battled from within. In the same way, your position in society, with all its duties, cannot be laid aside because it is full of trial. Those who do such things are faint-hearted, and fail in trust in him who fixed their station, and finds room for them to deny themselves in the trivial round and common task. It is pleasure involving no duty that should be given up, if we find it liable to lead us astray. I see, answered Guy, musingly, and this reading comes naturally, and is just what I wanted to keep the pleasant things from getting a full hold of me. I ought to have thought of it sooner, instead of dawdling a whole month in idleness. Then all this would not have happened. I hope it will be very tough. You've no great love for Latin and Greek. Oh, cried Guy eagerly, to be sure, I delight in Homer and the Georgics, and plenty more. What splendid things there are in these old fellows! But I never liked the drudgery part of the affair. And now, if I am to be set to work to be accurate, and to get up all the grammar and the Greek roots, it will be horrid enough in all conscience. He groaned as deeply as if he had not been congratulating himself just before on the difficulty. Who was your tutor? asked Mrs. Edmonston. Mr. Potts, said Guy. He is a very clever man. He had a common grammar school education, but he struggled on, taught himself a great deal, and at last thought it great promotion to be a teacher at the Commercial Academy, as they call it, at Moorworth, where Markham's nephews went to school. He is very clever, I assure you, and very patient of the hard, wearing life he must have of it there and, oh, so enjoying a new book, or an afternoon to himself. When I was about eight or nine, I began with him, riding into Moorworth three times in a week, and I have gone on ever since. I'm sure he has done the best he could for me, and he made the readings very pleasant by his own enjoyment. If Philip had known the difficulties that man has struggled through, and his beautiful temper— persevering in doing his best and being contented, I am sure he could never have spoken contemptuously of him. I am sure he would not, said Mrs. Edmonston. All he meant was that a person without a university education cannot tell what the requirements are to which a man must come up in these days. Ah, said Guy, laughing, how I wish Mr. Potts had been there to have enjoyed listening to Philip and Mr. Lasalle discussing some new lexicon, digging down for roots of words, and quoting passages of obscure Greek poets at such a rate. But if my eyes had been shut, I could have thought them two withered old students in spectacles and snuff-colored coats. Philip was in his element, said Mrs. Edmonston, smiling. Really, 
proceeded Guy, with animation. The more I hear and see of Philip, the more I wonder. What a choice collection of books he has, so many of them school prizes, and how beautifully bound. Ah, that is one of Philip's peculiar ways. With all his prudence and his love of books, I believe he would not buy one unless he had a reasonable prospect of being able to dress it handsomely. Did you see the print? Yes, that I did. What glorious loveliness! There is nothing that does it justice but the description in the lecture. Oh, I forgot. You have not heard it. You must let me read it to you by and by. Those two little angels, what faces they have! Perfect innocence, one full of reasoning, the other of unreasoning adoration. I see it, suddenly exclaimed Mrs. Edmonston. I see what you are like in one of your looks, not by any means and all. It is to the larger of those two angels. Very seldom, I should guess, said Guy, and sinking his voice as if he was communicating a most painful fact, he added, My real likeness is old Sir Hugh's portrait at home. But what were we saying? Oh, about Philip. How nice those stories were of Mrs. Dean's. She is very fond of him. To have won so much esteem and admiration, already from strangers, with no prejudice in his favor. It must be entirely his own doing, and well it may. Every time one hears of him, something comes out to make him seem more admirable. You are laughing at me, and I own it is presumptuous to praise. But I did not mean to praise, only to admire. I like very much to hear my nephew praised. I was only smiling at your enthusiastic way. I only wonder I am not more enthusiastic, said Guy. I suppose it is his plain good sense that drives away that sort of feeling. For he is as near heroism in the way of self-sacrifice, as a man can be in these days. Poor Philip! If disappointment can make a hero, it has fallen to his share. Ah! Guy, you are brightening and looking like one of my young ladies, in hopes of a tale of true love crossed. But it was only love of a sister. The sister for whom he gave up so much? Yes. His sister Margaret. She was eight or nine years older, very handsome, very clever, a good deal like him, a pattern elder sister. Indeed, she brought him up in great part after his mother died, and he was devoted to her. I do believe it made the sacrifice of his prospects quite easy to him, to know it was for her sake that she would live on at Stylehurst, and the change be softened to her. Then came Fanny's illness, and that led to the marriage with Dr. Henley. It was just what no one could object to. He is a respectable man in full practice, with a large income. But he is much older than she is, not her equal in mind or cultivation. And though I hardly like to say so, not at all a religious man. At any rate, Margaret Morville was one of the last people one could bear to see Mary for the sake of an establishment. 
Could her brother do nothing? He expostulated with all his might, but at nineteen he could do little with a determined sister of twenty-seven, and the very truth and power of his remonstrance must have made it leave a sting. Poor fellow, I believe he suffered terribly. Just as he had lost Fanny, too, which he felt very deeply, for she was a very sweet creature, and he was very fond of her. It was like losing both sisters and home at once. Has he not just been staying with Mrs. Henley? Yes. There was never any coolness, as people call it. He is the one thing she loves and is proud of. They always correspond, and he often stays with her. But he owns to disliking the doctor, and I don't think he has much comfort in Margaret herself, for he always comes back more grave and stern than when he went. Her house, with all her good wishes, can be no home to him, and so we try to make Hollywell supply the place of Stylehurst as well as we can. How glad he must be to have you to comfort him. Philip? Oh, no. He was always reserved, open to no one but Margaret, not even to his father. And since her marriage, he has shut himself up within himself more than ever. It has, at least, I think it is this that has given him a severity, an unwillingness to trust, which I believe is often the consequence of a great disappointment, either in love or in friendship. Thank you for telling me, said Guy. I shall understand him better, and look up to him more. Oh, it is a cruel thing to find that what one loves is, or has not been, all one thought. What must he not have gone through? Mrs. Evanston was well pleased to have given so much assistance to Guy's sincere desire to become attached to his cousin. One of the most favorable signs in the character that was winning so much upon her. End chapter 4 continued.